I want to invite you to be comfortable in John 14 because we're going to be there tonight. We're going to walk through all 31 verses. We're going to come back again on Sunday to some verses uh, early on in the chapter and revisit and think about them. There's, there's so much here. And then a week from Sunday, we're going to come back to another passage in John 14, another few verses there, and deal with some things there. I told you that this is such a rich section of Scripture, John 14, 15, 16, and 17. 14 through 16, really that vision for the untroubled life, as we talked about on Sunday. That's not a title that you'd find in your Bibles, but it just strikes me that that Jesus begins the whole thing saying in verse 1, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. So he's casting a vision for the untroubled life. Not a life that won't have troubles, not a life without trouble, but a life worth every trouble we have ever had or will ever have. Because if you walk with the Lord Jesus, if you know Jesus, if you find your comfort and your peace in Jesus, then troubles will come and troubles will go, but they will not determine the life that you live. Jesus does. And so he lays this out here and looking around that room, as we talked about on Sunday, at 11 troubled faces, I'm convinced, Jesus responds, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Starts focusing on himself, but then, again, as we talked about, detours to talk about heaven. Verse 2, in my Father's house are many dwellings, Many dwelling places, if it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Again, Jesus spoke these words on the darkest night of his life. The most extreme night, truly, of all Eternity. This was the night before God would die. The night before God would be crucified on a cross. And it's on this night that he repeats again, do not let your heart be troubled. Down in verse 27, do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Let me underscore this for you, boys, Jesus might say. Don't let your heart be troubled. But this is the night of his betrayal. This is the night of of His brutality, the brutality against Him. This is the night of His beatings and His unjust trials leading up to His crucifixion. Do not let your hearts be troubled, He says. Amazing. The Scriptures tell us in Psalm 27, verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? And so for all His disciples, near and far, Jesus knew there would be troubled times. He knew there would be difficulties, fearful days. He knew ISIS would be on the planet in these last days. He knew the troubles that we would face. But this is a vision for an untroubled life. Now, he talks about our heavenly home in verses 2 through 4. I had a bunch of pages of notes on that. We were going to go into that tonight. In fact, I think I told you Sunday, come back Wednesday night, we'll talk about heaven. Well, you're going to have to come back Sunday to talk about heaven because there's too much there. We would have spent the whole night in those couple of verses. And besides, I'd really like to have the, the entire fellowship hear it. Not that you're not important, but you're going to hear it anyway. So we're going to come back and look at these verses here. But remember, Paul called the knowing where we're going the very basis of comfort. He said in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 and 18, We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. That is, those who have passed away, those who have gone on before. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. I promise you, Sunday morning is going to be a comforting teaching as we consider heaven. So come on back for that. But we do know the way. Jesus says, you know the way where I am going. Verse 5, Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? If we don't know the destination, how can we know the route? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but 
through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip now says to him, Lord, show us the father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been so long with you and you have not come to know me, Philip? How can you say, he who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Hey, the words I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Like closing arguments in a court case, He tells the disciples, weigh the evidence, guys. Look at what has taken place. Philip, we've been together three and a half years in this ministry, and you still have to ask, show us the Father? How long does it take to get to know me? Jesus might say. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Look at the evidence. What have you seen? That's a good question. What have we seen? Okay, for those of you who studied through the Gospel of John, just this Gospel, just this record, what have we seen so far in Jesus? Love? Compassion? Mercy? Tenderness? Kindness? Goodness? Remember what God told Moses? I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. We see that in Jesus. In Jesus they had seen the affection of Abba. You know, the love of a father, the closeness of a brother, faithfulness of a friend. They had seen the glory of a king and the humility of a servant. And all of these things depict the father. So Jesus says, I've shown you the Father. Listen to the words that I speak. Are these not the words of God? Look at the works that I do. Are these not the works of the Father? And He is now on this final night speaking more plainly about His divine nature, about His deity, about His equality with the Father than He's done the entire time they've been with Him. He said things about it before. We've seen some of this. He's alluded to this. He's actually made some pretty blatant statements like in John chapter 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. Not sure how you can miss that, but they did. And so here we are. And and I almost get a sense on this last night that this is almost a last-ditch effort to get the evidence before them and have them believe. See, that's what Jesus is up to here. He's trying to help them believe. He will do this in your life. He's done it in mine. Where He gives me the building blocks of faith that my faith might be drawn out. And sometimes it's not comfortable, and sometimes it's difficult, and sometimes it's frustrating. But here we are on this last night, and he's pulling out all the stops, laying out everything possible that they might believe. Look at the evidence, guys. Pay attention to what you've seen. Think back over the last three years. What does this bring you to? It's like we're coming now to the apex of all of his representation of the Father. And you know that's John's heart as a gospel writer, is showing us the Father in the Son. Showing us the deity of Christ. So here it all comes to a head, and I have to ask the question, why now? Why on this night of his betrayal is he so intent on the teaching that is before us? Why these three chapters now? Why not after the resurrection? Wouldn't that be easier? All right, I'm back. Is it clear? Are you aware now of what I was trying to tell you? Why is He so intent now? Just just relax, Jesus, because, you know, they're going to get it after you're resurrected. Why now? Because Jesus is birthing faith. And faith comes from hearing. And hearing by the Word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. It is more important to Jesus that they understand that they be developed in the language of faith so that 
when He's resurrected, all of it will come flooding in. He's giving them the building blocks right now. The final building blocks that they will need. Listen to the words that I've been saying, He says. They're the Father's words. Look at the works that I've been doing. They're the Father's works. And so He is amassing the building blocks of their faith. Now, so that when He's resurrected, they will get it. Look down at verse 29 of John 14 and listen to what He says. Now I have told you before it happens so that when it happens, you may believe. That's the whole point. So that in the resurrection, when they see Jesus on that resurrection Sunday, just a few days hence, although it gets really dark from here to there, but on that Sunday evening, They will see Jesus, and all of this will come flooding in. Oh! I mean, it will just make tremendous sense. And it will shore up their faith, because Jesus knows something else. As He's already told them, yeah, He's going to resurrect, He's going to come back, they're going to see Him, but then He's going to be gone again. Thank you, Spencer. And when He's gone then, well, you know the fickle heart of man, we forget. And if faith isn't seated early on and ahead of time and built up, when it goes dark, when God is quiet, when there's not that fleshly representation right in front of our faces, man, that's when we need faith. So He's building it now, He's developing it now, and then He says something absolutely astounding. After saying, believe because of the works themselves, truly, truly, I say to you, verse 12, Amen and Amen. He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. Wait a minute. Stop right there. Really? That's cool. The works that Jesus did. Now, I don't know what you do, but I know what I've done for years when I've read that verse. I jump immediately to the miraculous, the marvelous, and the supernatural. Wait, Jesus rose people from the dead. (laughs) That's what I want to do. Jesus healed the sick, so I should be able to do that, right? This is going to be awesome. We're just going to walk around touching people and they're getting well. I'm like, yo. That's what he did. So that's what I get to do. You know, the good stuff. And yes, we are called to a supernatural faith. But listen, Jesus didn't say, the signs I do, you will do, and greater than these. What did he say? The works. The works. You know, if you want the best of everything on a burger, how do you order it? Give me the works. Give me the works. The problem is that we assume the works here only includes the supernatural sauces. We hear Jesus say, greater than these, and we go, well then why am I not walking around raising the dead right and left? Wouldn't it be awesome on our, on our Israel tours if we stood on the Mount of Olives, held up our hands, and all of the Jewish people in those tombs came out of their tombs right then? That'd be fun. Get people signing up for that tour right and left, you know? How did Jesus describe the works of God? Because what He's saying here is you will work these works. The works that I do, you're going to do. And greater works. So what are the works? He begins by describing them this way. This is the work of God, John 6.29, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. It starts right there. The works of God start with faith. Very simply, I believe In Jesus, I take Him at His word. Doing the works that He did begins with simple faith. But for faith to live, for faith to survive, for faith to grow, it has to become actionable. Read James 2 on your own time. Faith without works is dead. Oh, you can tell me all day long you got faith, but if there are no actionable works behind the faith, you don't have faith. You have a belief system. But faith... Faith moves us to action. The Greek word for works, when Jesus says, He who believes in me, that there's the faith, he who has faith in me, believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. The word works is ergon in the Greek, and it means deeds, doings, and labor. It doesn't have anything to do with supernatural. There are supernatural works. There are gifts of the Spirit. 
There is power to be given and to be had in the body of Christ. Absolutely, no question. But what he's saying here is, do the works. You're going to do the works that I do. Well, okay, let's think about that. Instead of walking on water, how about we start by washing feet? That was the most recent work that he had just done. Before we seek to calm the storms, what if we calm people's hearts with the gospel of peace? That's a work. Instead of focusing so much on the signs, Jesus calls us to do the works that He did. Well, I can do that. And what's interesting about the works of Christ is they tend to be works of service and works of humility. And when I'm doing the works, I'm not so pumped up about myself as I would be if I was doing the signs. I might be tempted to self-glory when it comes to the signs, but the works, I just wash some guy's feet. (laughs) I should get a badge for that. That's impressive. Do the works. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, the prophecy of Messiah that he claimed for himself in Nazareth, in the synagogue on kind of his inaugural day of ministry, It says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. That's a work. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. That's a work. To proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. That's a work. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Work, work, work. These are the works of Jesus. These are the works that He did. Yeah, but Rick, but what about the supernatural signs and the spiritual power gifts? You let the Spirit deal with that. Because the Lord promises He's going to pour out the gift when and where He sees it to be necessary. In fact, Mark 16, 17 says that signs will follow those who believe. Not signs will lead. Not signs will prove. No, signs will come after. That is, we go out believing in Jesus, doing the works of Jesus, the service of Jesus, loving people like Jesus. The signs will follow. They'll happen. But they are not our focus. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11, One and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. What does that mean? It means the gifts are going to be given. It means the power is going to happen. It means there should be healings. There should be supernatural things going on. But, as the Spirit determines it, not as I do. Well, then what am I supposed to do? Do the works. Do the works. Again, the signs don't lead. They follow. And both the works and the signs of Jesus were affected by one thing, that is the anointing of the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to do the works, the works of God. So when it comes to living for Jesus in this world by the power of His Spirit, give Him the works. Give Him the works. Verse 12 continues. And greater than these He will do Because I go to the Father. Greater than these, Jesus? How is that possible? He's Jesus. He's the only God-man. So how is it possible that we can do greater works than Jesus did? That's pretty simple, actually. Greater in quantity and greater in quality. Both. Greater quantitatively. Jesus, think about this, was limited by His own flesh. When God became flesh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, guess where He dwelt? In the Galilee. He was just one guy. He was just limited to one human body. How far could He go? As far as His feet could take Him. And there was a very tight limit to the distance of Jesus' ministry. If you go to Israel, you see how far that is. It's not far. Around the Sea of Galilee, up as far as Tyre and Zidon, down as far as Jerusalem, out into the desert... I mean, the circumference of his whole entire ministry that radically rocked the face of the earth is tiny. He was limited by his feet. And he was limited by his lifespan. He had 33 years to get it all in. Three years of ministry. See, if I had 33 years, and I knew I was only going to have 33 years, I think I would start as a two-year-old. You know, get it done as much as... Get going, quickly! And Jesus waits until he's 30 
three years, one man, he was limited. It's been 2,000 years, how many Christians? Quantitatively, we have been able to cover far more ground and do far more works than Jesus ever did in the short span and limited uh, plane of his life. You're going to do greater than me, he says. Absolutely. But he also said this, he said, because I go to the Father. Well, why is that significant? John 12, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So we have accomplished far more in 2,000 years and multitudes of followers of Jesus than one Jesus would accomplish in terms of the works in just three years in the Galilee. Quantitatively. But we also will do greater works, have done greater works qualitatively. What do you mean by that? Jesus came and His ministry was about preparing the way for the kingdom. Our ministry is about proclaiming the kingdom is open now. He said the kingdom is coming. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. We say the kingdom's here. You want to be part of the kingdom? Come to Jesus. Jesus prepared the way. We point people to the way who is Jesus Himself. The immediate outcome of Jesus' public ministry... Immediate outcome. So let, let's let's put on kind of business hats and and let's let's measure the success. He died. So what was the success from that? At least from Friday to Sunday of, of that weekend. Eleven guys scared out of their wits. One betrayer and a handful of women. We don't even know where they were, but they're all depressed and crying and weeping and sobbing and not the most highly successful ministry. I've ever heard of. And even after that, what happened? I mean, about 150 disciples. Once after the resurrection, now he appeared to more than 500 people at one time, but we know that in the 10 days between his ascension and the beginning of the church, in that short little span of time, 150 people were waiting and praying and hanging out in Jerusalem. 150? The bridge is bigger than that, Jesus. Because His Spirit is at work. And because we have 2,000 years of quantitative and qualitative works being done in the name of Jesus by the power of His Spirit through the church. You're going to do greater works than these, He says. And the proof is in the history. We have. You see, 150 waited in Jerusalem until He poured out His Spirit and then 3,000 were saved. And then 5,000, and then 10,000, and then multiplied millions who will ultimately worship around His throne. You want to see the success of Jesus' ministry, and it'll be that day when we're all around the throne in heaven, and we will say, Wow, this is awesome. You're going to do greater works. So, give them the works. Verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. Oh, good, because my car is really not running the way I want it to. And I've had my eye on this uh, cool little number. No. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that. And you might want to circle the so that in your Bibles. It's critical to what he's saying. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, and that would be worth circling, I will do it. You come to me, you ask in my name. And understand this. This isn't just Jesus offering us a way to sign off our prayers. And Father, we thank you for this, and we pray for that, and we have this need here and that need there. Sincerely yours, Rick. You know, hugs and kisses, Rick. In Jesus' name, Rick. Too many of us as followers of Jesus relegate the idea of praying in Jesus' name to the conclusion of the prayer. You want to freak people out? Start with it. In Jesus' name, we come to you, Lord, to pray, and then just end with an amen, and all be kind of going, in fact, Joel did that. You didn't say in Jesus' name at the end of your prayer. I almost fell off my chair and hit my face on the floor. We need the in Jesus' name, man. 
It's, 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 like the, it's like the last line of the movie. It's what closes the thing out. It's the final chord of the song. No, it's not. It's the manner in which we pray. Not the conclusion of the prayer. In Jesus' name. Because the works are done in Jesus' name. Not in my name, not in your name, not in the name of the Bridge Christian Fellowship, not in the name of some denominational classification. The works are in His name. So we pray in His name, by His will, for His desires. That's what He's calling the apostles to. And man, you come to me praying that way, I'm going to answer you, and I'm going to do it. Whatever you ask in my name, whatever you ask in my character, in my nature, in my will, in my purposes, in my desire, I'm going to do that. So come and ask. I wonder sometimes, Jeff and I were actually texting back and forth, and I wonder if he chuckles sometimes at our cool little church names. The Bridge. That's cool. Where do you go? I go to the Bridge. Well, I go to Living Word. Ooh, okay. So your church is living where we're just a bridge. Yeah, well, I go to Life Church. We're really... I mean, you know, you can start throwing names out there. And, you know, no dispersion on any of the other churches around here. But we get so caught up in the name. You know what's great about the Bridge Christian Fellowship? You are. The fellowship. That's what's awesome. We could change the name tomorrow and it wouldn't matter. We could be do you know, Church on Troxel. Where do you go, Church on Troxel? Oh, that's cool. (laughs) It is not in my name. It is not in your name. It is not in the name of our church congregation. It is in the name of Jesus. His church. His work. His thing. So this isn't a trivial offer. When Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. He's telling this to His disciples. So he's talking to people who are serious about the will and the work of God. And you come praying to him in that way. And I think I've told you before, I think the best way to pray, especially when you're confused about how to pray, is, Lord, give me prayers to pray. Lord, you tell me what you want me to pray. And then just be silent for a while. What if he doesn't say anything? Wait a little longer. Yeah, but what if an hour goes by? Then you've spent an hour of glorious time with the Lord. Isn't that great? Ask Him for prayers to pray. And if if you're still not hearing, open the Word and just start praying the Word. But we pray in His name. Because praying in His name is praying in harmony with His Spirit. Verse 15. He says, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. That's the first verse I ever memorized. John 14, 15. It was like five years old. My dad taught it to me. And I walk around the house. John 14, 15. If you love Me, you'll keep My commandments. And I just, I've never forgotten that. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you say that to me, I'll say, John 14, 15. <laughs> I liked it because the 15 comes right after the 14, and I had just learned to count, so it all worked really well for me. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But please understand, because took, it took me years to get this. I memorized the verse, but I did not understand the verse. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is not the requirement of love. It's the response of love. He doesn't say, if you love me, you must keep my commandments. No, he says, if you love me, you will. You just will. How do you know someone loves Jesus? Well, they're keeping his commandments. They're not doing it out of compulsion. They're not doing it out of fear. Not doing it out of trying to, man, work my way into His good graces. No, I I do it because I love Him. It's that simple. If you love me, you will. And it's as natural as breathing when you love Jesus. John will pick up on this theme later on. 1 John chapter 5, verse 2. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Remember in another place, Jesus says the entire law and the prophets hang on this. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Done. You have just kept the law if you love God and if you love people. And that's the deal. If you love me, you're going to do as I ask. Proof is in the pudding. And it's in the setting of love that He now reveals the precious promise of another 
helper. Verse 16, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper that He may be with you forever. Forever. The Greek word for forever, jot this down, means forever. (laughs) Another helper. When Jesus says, as He will in a minute here, I will not leave you as orphans, orphanas in the Greek, I'm not going to leave you as fatherless. He meant it. You will not be alone. You will not be without Me. I'm going to send another helper. Helper in the Greek, you Bible students know this, parakletos. Parakletos, one who walks alongside. If you want something to help you remember that the Spirit walks alongside you, just think a pair of cleats. <laughs> he's got a pair of cleats and he's walking. So even when it's muddy and slippery in the grass, he's got a pair of cleats, so he's not falling over. He's walking right alongside me. Parakletos means comforter. It means helper, counselor, advocate, encourager. And the promise of another helper comes because Jesus is the original helper. See, the Holy Spirit is another helper, but Jesus is already their helper. They've known this for three and a half years. I'm going to send you another. But right now, who was their comforter? Jesus. Who was their encourager, their advocate, their counselor? Who did the apostles go to? Why are they so freaked out here that He might possibly leave them? Because He's their helper. Because they have learned to trust Him. They have been walking with Him. And they know that He's not going to steer them wrong. But now He's going away. And so bringing that encouragement as He's doing on this night, helping them to not let their hearts be troubled, He says, I'm going to send another helper, the paraclete, The Holy Spirit. He promises not to leave them fatherless. Verse 17, he goes on, that is the Spirit of truth. Let me pause here and point something out real quickly. Helper, Spirit of truth, these are not names. The Holy Spirit is not named in Scripture. Which is why, I tell you that because it bothered me so much. Some of you have read the book, The Shack. And it bothered me so much that the Holy Spirit character in that book was a wispy Asian woman named Sarah Yu. And what bothered me was the Sunday after I had actually kind of read through this book, and there were were several red flags throughout. I won't get into it right now. If you want to talk to me about that, that's fine. But someone came up to me and said, I was so, so blessed by this book, The Shack. And I went, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, because now I know what to call the Holy Spirit. Okay, Sarah Yu is a river in ancient Hindu belief. It's a spiritual river for Hindus. And when people see that, they go, oh, so I can call the Holy... You know why we're not given a name for the Holy Spirit? Same reason why you would not be given a different name for your spirit. You know what my spirit's name is? Rick! Yeah, Rick the Spirit. Spirit of Rick. Because throughout the Scriptures we have the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord. His Spirit. And so there is no name given, just description. He's the paraclete, He's the Helper. He is the Spirit of Truth, which means He's absolutely genuine. He's not going to steer you wrong. Whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see Me, but you will see Me. Because I live, you will live also, He says. Verse 20, In that day you will know that I am in My Father, and you are in Me, and I in you. This is the desire of Jesus. This is the level of intimacy that He is longing for and has called us to. I and the Father, you and me, I and you. Verse 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Philippians 1.19, Paul said, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ. 
And that is how Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you fatherless. He says, I will come to you. How? My spirit. My spirit. He promised to come to us. The spirit of Jesus. And I've told you over and over, this is not the force. You know, this is not like a cheer at a football game. We've got the Spirit. Yes, we do. We've got the Spirit. How about you? No. Spirit of truth, the helper, the Spirit, Paul says, of Jesus Christ, who will come to you, who has promised to come to us as followers of His, to comfort, to encourage, to advocate for, to counsel. We have His Spirit. And this is the first of four, what I would call, paraclete promises in these three chapters of John. Four paraclete promises in this discourse, and this is one of those areas I hate to make you wait, but we're going to have to come back to it a week from Sunday. Because I promise the Lord, as I studied through this, we're going to spend some time in at least a couple of consecutive Sundays talking about what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. So that we can understand the Spirit from Jesus' perspective. Now we've seen the Spirit described in the Hebrew Scriptures. We've seen the Spirit of the Lord throughout the New Testament, but right here in these very, very powerful sayings, four different ones, Jesus expresses the nature and the the work of the Holy Spirit. So we'll be looking at that a couple of weeks um, out here. But verse 22, so Judas is sitting here, Judas not Iscariot, which I think became his name from then on. Hey Judas, not Iscariot. (laughs) Or J&I, whatever worked for him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? In other words, how are we going to see you and they don't? Or won't? How does that work? He's confused by this. Now this is Judas, the son of James, Luke chapter 6, verse 16. In Luke 6, he's listed among the 12 as Judas, the son of James. In the list that's given in Matthew 10.3 and Mark 3.18, there is no Judas, son of James. But there is Thaddeus. And so we're pretty sure that Thaddeus and Judas, son of James, are one and the same. Thaddeus is just another name for this Judas, son of James. I mean, would you want to be called Judas after this? It's not one of the most popular child names in the world. Even today, 2,000 years later, people shy away from calling it Judas cool. Hey, Jude. We can go there. But Judas, be careful. That's kind of a betrayal kind of a thing. You don't want to... Even non-believers steer clear of that name. So right here we have Judas, not Iscariot, or Judas, son of James, or Thaddeus, as he continues to be called. Man, would you want to be called Judas when someone sharing that same name? That's all. That's awful. You know, back when uh, before Hayden was born, we're talking about baby names, and uh, Hannah wanted to name Hayden American Sharsha. I don't know. I don't even know what that means. That was her name. American would be his first name, and Sharsha would be his middle name if he was a girl. American Sharsha. I'm so thankful he was a boy. But we were talking about baby names, and Cheryl really liked the name Hayden. Well, right at that time, the show Coach was huge. I'm like, everybody's going to call him Hayden Fox. They're going to call him Coach, you know, from the show Coach that was on TV at the time. Well, it went away, and Cheryl was right. No one looks at my son Hayden and thinks of Coach, although the show's coming back. Could be problematic. Anyway, here's this Judas. I would not want to be called Judas. Who would want to be called Judas? Some people do. With every denial of Jesus, that's a name that people own. Among the disciples, Acts chapter 11, verse 26, they were called Christians. Little Christ. They were first called Christians in Antioch. It is interesting to me that the two earliest Gospels, Matthew and Mark, call him Thaddeus, as if to clearly separate him from Judas Iscariot, because it was still fresh. It's the later Gospel accounts, the Gospel account of Luke, and many years after that, the Gospel account of John, where he is referred to as Judas again. Why is that? Well... I wonder if Judas, son of James, just made peace with the name. Because it really doesn't matter what I'm called here on earth as long as I am called after Christ. 
You can call me anything you want. Any name. But I belong to Jesus. Receive Jesus and you bear His name. Deny Jesus and you might as well bear the name of Judas. So Judas, not Iscariot, asks, how are we going to see you and they won't? Verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we note that we make a, a circle around that we will come to him and make our abode with him. What does that tell you about the Holy Spirit? This is the spirit of the Lord. Will you mean the Lord the Father? Yes. Will you mean the Lord the Son? Yes. Spirit of Jesus? Yes. The Holy Spirit? Yes. We will come. We'll make our abode with Him. That, that was another one. That in John 14, 15 that just so impressed me as a kid. This word abode. For one thing, it sounded so holy to me. Abode. I would use that in elementary school. Kids would say, you're going to go home? No, I'm going to my abode. <laughs> We're going to come and make our abode. We're going to abide with you. Verse 24, Jesus says, He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. So I'm abiding with you right now. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. This is the answer to the question. How are we going to see you and the world will not? And Jesus very simply answers, in the Spirit. See, I'm going to come to you. And you're going to be aware of me. You're going to hear from me. You're going to know me. We're going to have a relationship and it is not something that the world can get its fingers on, not without faith. You've got to come to me believing first. And believing that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him, right? So my Spirit is going to come to you. But, but understand this, how can He bring something to my remembrance? He's going to bring to remembrance all that I taught you. Well, how's that possible? Only if He is in you. Only if He's in you. Jesus is not talking about post-it notes here. <laughs> Which right now are littering my kitchen because it's the only way I can keep track of life with Cheryl down. What do we have today? Okay, okay. Can we throw that one away? No, keep that one. And right now on my counter, those of you who are here Sunday, I've got five notes written out that just say, soccer snack on Saturday, exclamation points. <laughs> i got to bring it to my remembrance, man. But that's not what he's talking about. It's more than that. It's more than reminders. This is the one who brings up the remembrance of all that Jesus had said to them. How is that possible? Unless it's one right in here, right in here. The Spirit is going to bring these things up. It's going to remind you of these things. That, by the way, is how the Gospels got written. Doug was asking me about that. We were having that conversation. How did the Gospels get written? How did they know? Every word inspired by the living God. And right here Jesus says, these things are going to be brought to your remembrance. So the Gospel writer sat down and the Holy Spirit brought it all up. And John just started writing. Basically John was the pen, the Holy Spirit was the author. I'm going to bring this stuff to your remembrance. So here's the answer to the question of Judas, not Iscariot. The difference between a follower of Jesus Christ and the world is the indwelling Spirit of the living God. That's the difference. That's how we're going to see Him and know Him, but the world does not. That's how the world misses, because there's no understanding there without the Spirit of truth. Okay, well then is there something I can do to invite Him? Absolutely. Listen, pay close attention. The secret to the revelation... The secret to the manifestation in a person's life of Jesus Christ is twofold. And Jesus said it in verse 23. Look back up there. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Now remember, these are not just random thoughts with Jesus. Jesus is answering a question. How is it that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? If anyone loves me, 
He will keep my word. That's how. And my Father will come to Him and we will make our abode in Him. So the key is twofold. Those who love Jesus and who keep, literally who keep keeping His word. The Greek word there for keep is keep keeping. It's, it's a keep on keeping it. You love Him, you keep keeping His, his Word. That's how you're going to know. That's how you're going to be aware. That's how He discloses Himself to you. Love Jesus and keep keeping His Word. Why? Because He's not going to. He can't. He won't bring to remembrance something that you wouldn't remember. If you hadn't experienced it, if you hadn't read it, if you hadn't heard it, How's he going to bring it to your remembrance? It's like it's like osmosis in high school. This is what my friends and I all believed. If you don't have time to study for the test, put your head on your pillow, go to sleep, open the book on your brow, and hope that somehow it seeps in. And then I'll just remember stuff. And I would pray, Lord, help me remember stuff for this test. And I could just hear the Lord saying, remember what? You didn't study. I'll help you remember what's in there. Which wasn't much, you know? I'm going to bring to remembrance those things that are there to remember. John 12, verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey. And he sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. A word of prophecy. These things, note this, these things, his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of Him and that they had done these things to Him. They didn't get it. Donkey Day, they didn't understand. The triumphal entry, yeah, they were throwing down palm leaves and jackets and saying, you know, Hosanna in the highest. Woohoo, this is a great day. Look at this. They had no idea what was really going on. But later... They would be remembering. It would be brought to their remembrance. Remember what Jesus said to Peter at the washing of the feet just a few minutes before this. John thirteen seven. What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. You're going to get it. But we got to do this now first. What are you saying, Rick? You want to increase your understanding hereafter? Keep on keeping His Word. Stay with the Word. Stay in the Word. Remain in the Word. Study the Word. Pour over the Word. Pray through the Scriptures. Do what you're doing right now. And and I promise you this. You may not understand it right now. You will. You will. He's going to bring it to your remembrance. I did not get, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I memorized it. It was in there. It got shelved among a few little memory verses that I did as a kid. I didn't understand it. I do now. But if I didn't memorize it then, it would not be here for me to know now. I will bring it to your remembrance. Hey, it may not even seem relevant to you tonight. There may be, I I guess, certain Wednesday nights where you walk out of here and go, that really didn't apply to me. Guess what? It will. It will. Maybe not tonight. Maybe not tomorrow. Maybe not for a year or two or three or however long the Lord tarries. But it will. If it's there... He's going to bring it to remembrance. I promise you that. Revelation 3.10 says, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. And that hour is fast approaching, so stay in His word, and He will keep you from the hour of testing. Talking about the rapture of the church, pulling us out before the tribulation. Love Him and keep on keeping His Word. And I promise you, Jesus promises you, I will disclose Myself to you. And you will know Me. Spencer, spent 11 years, right? I'm picking on you. Do you remember the first few Sundays, the first few Wednesdays, how many questions you had? There are far fewer questions these days, right? Why is that? Well, I've been studying the Word. Okay. Right answer. I'll pay you later. That's exactly <laughs> it. No, I, I, I sometimes I use, you know, Spencer's kind of a, a, a 
whipping boy, but he's really more of a poster child for exactly what we're talking about. There were so many things early on that when Spencer first came to the Lord, it was like, I just, I don't get this. And and I remember you saying things like, how am I ever going to understand all this? And now we have conversations where Spencer is teaching me, and that's because the Lord is bringing to remembrance 11 years of being faithful in the Word. And I'm not saying that to, you know, to Spencer's horn. He's blessed. I don't even have to say that. God is blessing him because he's in the Word and God is bringing that to remembrance. I'm belaboring the point, but you get what I'm saying. He will bring to remembrance what you have already tucked away to be remembered later. Verse 27. And more on the Holy Spirit later, like I said. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. That's a very emotional verse for me. If you listen to the first worship CD that we did with our worship team, and you listen to the song Refuge, there's a little boy's voice. The voiceover is right at the beginning of the song, and then the song begins. You are my peace, where I can be still. That little voice is Hayden, my son. What most people don't know is in that season of Hayden's life, he was going through more trouble than he has experienced in his whole life. It was a hard, hard season. And when I hear that song on that CD, it's hard for me to listen to it because it's so emotional for me because I know what he was going through. I know what he had to deal with. And having him, that was my intention, was to have him speak those words. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You know what Jesus said here? You know what the apostles heard? Shalom. Shalom I give to you. Shalom. And it is a shalom. It is a peace. Peace, the concept of peace to the Jewish mind is so much bigger than Western mentality understands. It's not just peace. What up? Take it easy. It's not just chilling. Peace to the Jewish mindset is its well-being, its life, its goodness, its contentment, its happiness, its everything is where it should be and all is right with the Lord. That's peace. Shalom. And Jesus says, Shalom I give to you. My shalom I give to you. Isaiah 26, verse 3, the prophet said, The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. King James translation of that same verse, Isaiah 26, 3, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. I love this. The Hebrew, you may recall this when we studied Isaiah. The Hebrew word for perfect peace the translation there is shalom shalom it's a double portion of shalom perfect peace shalom shalom and my friends the world can't give it because the best the world has to offer is a double shot of espresso God says, I will give you double shalom. I will give you the double portion of peace. And the world, all the world can do is give you something to get you by. Like Jeff getting coffee tonight. <laughs> i got to pick on you, man. I walk out there. Worship had just started. Jeff's out by the coffee machine. And he's got those little vias. You know, the, the via packs from... Yeah, there they are. There they are. He's carrying a packet of via. We gotta talk, dude. You got an addiction problem. I'm serious. It's not good. He he pours coffee from the coffee thing out there, and then he's pouring via into the coffee. It's not strong enough. Not strong enough. You know what? I'm picking on you, but the, the world I, I was serious about that. It sounds funny. Double piece or a double shot of espresso. I'm not being Joking here, I'm saying a double shot of espresso will get me through the day. Another cup of coffee will get me an hour further down the line because i got to have the energy to do what I'm about to do, so I'm going to take another shot. It's Christian crack. (laughs) 
and it's an example of how the world... I'm, I'm not down on coffee. I drink coffee, okay? I drink tea, whatever. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, think about the difference between when Jesus says, my peace I give, I don't give to you like the world gives to you. How does the world give to you? Stuff that doesn't last. Stuff that while it may give you the energy you need for the next hour, it's also eating away the lining of your stomach. <laughs> stuff that damages you. Stuff that is not eternal. The world, that's how the world gives. The world gives to get you by for the next hour. The world gives and takes back. The world gives with interest. The world gives what it does not own. Therefore, it cannot give to you rightly. Because nothing that the world gives you belongs to the world. On the other hand, the peace of Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Absolute shalom, always consistent peace. Never ending. Never beginning. Always has been because peace is Jesus. The peace of Christ is never taken back. My peace I give to you, and it's yours. It's all yours. The peace of Christ is freely given. There's no interest, there's no charge. Because the peace of Christ is Christ Jesus. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.14 He Himself is our peace. Philippians 4.6 Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Don't miss that. Not only does His peace guard my spirit man, but His peace guards my soul man, which is where all my battles take place. This is where the stress happens. This is where the worry and the fretting and the fear and the anxiety, it's all in the soul. It's not in the spirit, it's the soul. Trying to work it out. And Jesus says, if you'll pray, I'm not only going to guard your heart, I'm going to guard your soul against that stuff. With my peace. Finally, Colossians 3.15 says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Who rules your heart? Is it the boss? Is it you? Paul says, Let the peace of Christ be in charge. Let His peace be your ruler. It's as simple as bowing the heart to Jesus. My peace I give to you. Well, verse 28. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced. Because I go to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Father is greater than I? John just spent the entire Gospel telling us that Jesus was equal to the Father. We have been working this program for weeks now. The deity of Christ, the Godness of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Word that is is God and was with God. He was with God in the beginning and all things were created through Him. That's how the Gospel begins, right? And all of a sudden Jesus, almost out of the corner of His mouth, makes this comment, for the Father is greater than I. What? Just delete that in your Bibles and we won't have to deal with it. Okay? No, He said it. The Father is greater than I. His enemies would crucify Him for claiming equality with God, for making Himself equal with God. So how can He now say the Father is greater than I? Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. And we must grasp this. Jesus is, was, and forever will be equal to the Father. He is God. And yet, in His incarnation, Jesus, though equal to God, laid aside His equality. Did not count equality with God something to cling to. He let it go. That's how much He loves you. How much He loves me. You want to talk about the humility, the servant nature of God? There it is. He who is God and yet said, but I'm not going to claim that. 
I'm not going to. The Father's greater than I. And in His flesh, truly God was, because Jesus was, remember, limited by His flesh. So at that moment, yes, the Father was greater. But note something else here that's interesting to me. He said, if you loved me, you'd rejoice for me, for I go to my Father. I think about this from time to time when a Christian brother or sister dies. And on the one hand, there's that sorrow, that loss, that sense of they're gone. But that reminder, yeah, but but look where they are. I mean, if anything, Christian funerals really ought to be gatherings for jealousy. (laughs) You know, he got to go. I know, I'm stuck here too. I don't know why he was so great. He got to go home and we're all still here. Come on. No, I mean, rejoicing that they get to be home. To be with, that's, that's the whole idea. That's where we're going. It's what I want. But Jesus says something, and I've got to point this out to you. Do you realize that every single question of the disciples on this night were all about themselves? There wasn't a single among the eleven left over there. Not a single one asked, How you doing, Jesus? You seem troubled. What's going on with you? You're telling us some heavy things. How does this feel to you? Can can I pray for you, Lord? (laughs) Not a single one of them. What you hear instead is Peter saying, Lord, do you wash my feet? (laughs) John 13, 6. John 13, 25. After Peter nudges him, John's saying, Lord, who is it? Who's going to betray you? They're only worried about themselves. John 13, 36. Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Lord, why can't I follow you right now? John 14, verse 5. Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? How do we? 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 Bunch of whiners? John 14, verse 8. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. Oh, well, that's, that's nice of you, Philip. Thanks for that. That's all we really need here, but, but you got to do this for us. John 14, 22. Judas, not Iscariot. Who says, Lord, what has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? They are all focused on themselves. They're asking every question about themselves. They're worried for themselves. They're, they're not concerned with Jesus. What He's about to face, what's coming here. No wonder they were troubled. And that's the deal. The greatest key to living the untroubled life, I'm convinced, is this. If we are only concerned for ourselves, trouble will constantly be at the door. If I'm worried about myself, if I'm looking at myself, if I'm concerned for myself, trouble's going to be there constantly. But, if I am concerned for Jesus, peace. Because He does not give to us as the world gives. And that's the shift of faith for us as followers of Jesus. To shift from self-concern to Jesus' concern. And you know this to be true, brothers and sisters. When you focus on Jesus, everything is fine. And it doesn't really matter what troubles are going on. It doesn't matter in the least. They're just troubles. If you're focused on Jesus. But the second I take my eyes off Him and I start to look at myself and think about and spin in my problems, I get stressed like nobody's business. You do not want to be around me when I am focused on myself. It's not a pretty picture. No, we got trouble. Right here in River City. Trouble, trouble, trouble. No peace. Concern for Him. The apostles didn't have it. Well, verse 29 Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. I love that. He got nothing on me. Who's the ruler of this world? Satan is. The devil. He is the ruler of this world, and Jesus says he's got nothing on me. In other words, he doesn't have a case against me. But at that very moment, the rule of the world was coming in the person of Judas Iscariot. 
in that moment. This is not some, you know, the rule of the world is coming and he's going to start messing things up here in the future down you know, in the church age. No, he's talking about that night. I don't have long. I'm not going to speak much more with you for the ruler of the world is coming. Possessing the son of perdition, Judas Iscariot. He's on the way. Right then as Jesus is talking in the upper room, Judas has got the guys and they're on the way. They're coming. But what's wonderful is that Satan possessing Judas in this moment that he thought he was winning unwittingly is playing right into Jesus' hands. The very hands that will bear the scars are the same hands that controlled this very night. Verse 31. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. He says, get up, let us go from here. And Jesus gets up, obedient to the Father, and begins the walk to Gethsemane. Right there, in the middle of this teaching. Now the teaching is going to continue, picking up in verse 1 of chapter 15, which we'll get to next week. But in that, understand behind the scenes what's happening. He's teaching, but they're walking. They've left the upper room, and now they're on their way to Gethsemane. And that's where this teaching is continuing to take place. We'll come to it next week. I want to leave you with this verse one more time. Verse 27, peace. I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Lord, we receive your shalom, shalom tonight. You offered, you promised a double portion of peace. And it is a peace unlike anything we can get anywhere else. And I come before you tonight, Lord, seeking and asking for yet again, that peace which surpasses all comprehension. Now, honestly, Lord, right now in my life, things are a little nutty. At home, a little crazy. We got a man down, woman down. And so it, there's a lot going on for me. And I, I'm just saying, Lord, I, I needed this tonight. I needed to be, to be reminded that you don't give like this world. Thank you for that, Jesus. Thank you for your peace. And without having any foreknowledge or understanding of what's going on in anyone else's life here tonight, in the gathering of our fellowship, Lord, I know that You desire peace for us in our inmost beings. And so I pray shalom over every person here. In the name of Jesus Christ, who is our peace, take our stresses, our woes, our fears, our sorrows, our frets, our concerns, And Lord, pour out your peace. May we only be concerned with Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, God bless you all. We'll get back to heaven on Sunday if we're here. Otherwise, we'll just be there. So.